0: Recently on a vacation to the Outer Banks, I was looking at a map and I was curious how Nag's Head got its name. I had assumed that the shape of the island maybe at one time had resembled the head of a pony, also called a Nag. But as I looked into it, just stoking my curiosity, instead I found that according to legend, shipwreckers along the coastline Would light lanterns on the necks of ponies and then would parade them up and down the dunes, and this would simulate lights of boats at anchor. So unsuspecting captains out at the sea would be drawn in by this ruse, and where they expected safe harbor, the captains would quickly discover the truth. They had been lured into a trap where their ships would run aground on the underwater shoals, their cargo would be seized they and their crews would likely be killed. When I learned of this, I couldn't help but see the parallels in the topic that we're going to be considering today from Proverbs chapter 5 and chapter 7. And that problem is the deadly danger of sexual immorality. You see, God has given a beautiful shoreline, a peaceful and fulfilling pattern for human sexuality. But Satan, like the unscrupulous shipwreckers, has filled our world with countless traps and snares meant to lure us in and run us aground. He parades constantly in front of us false lights that promise satisfaction, safety, fulfillment, only for us to be drawn in to find the sad truth. It's all a lie, a ruse that leads to death. The shorelines of history are also littered with those who have shipwrecked their life and their faith, are they not? Maybe some of us in this room know of families that have been torn apart because a man or a woman has bought the lie that adultery was worth it. How many of us know of pastors and evangelists that have defiled the name of Christ through sexual immorality, causing confusion and marring the image of Christ and our witness to the world? Maybe many of us, some of us in this room, have been lured in by the empty promises of sexual immorality and Maybe even today we bear the marks of shame and regret, of having been fooled ourselves. Our ships run aground in the darkness, our joy plundered by the enemy. Brothers and sisters, while all sin is destructive, sexual sin in Scripture seems unique in its ability to ensnare and to destroy. But God in His Word has warned us of the deception, amen? Amen. He offers us a bright light to shine along the coastline, binoculars to see what lies ahead. He's placed beacons in the water to guide our path, and He's calibrated our compass to lead us to safer shores. And in Proverbs 5 and 7, we're going to see the topic of purity is critical to success in our Christian journey given that Solomon spends the better parts of chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 exploring this topic as an admonition to his son. And it's not just in those chapters. It also pervades chapter 2 and chapter 9. It's all over the beginning discourses of the book of Proverbs and the point of his exhortations, and therefore the point of this sermon, are the same. We must protect purity we must protect purity. So, how do we do this? Well, to answer this, we're going to consider four points that explore both the motivations and the implications for protecting purity from the verses today. By way of motivation, we're going to consider the purposes of purity and the penalties that await impurity. And then by way of implication, we're going to consider the persuasions to impurity and then the paths that lead us to purity. So, let's start by considering the purposes of purity, and those purposes are God's glory and our good. Let's begin by looking at Proverbs 5, starting in verse 1. I'd invite you to turn there if you haven't already. He says in this discourse, My son, be attentive to my wisdom and incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. As we begin, we have to remember that the audience here is Solomon's son, and so contextually there's going to be a big focus on men protecting their way and avoiding sexual sin, but we're also going to see as we develop these themes and look at them that really these themes apply to all of us, both men and women alike. And even though the primary focus here is adultery, I also believe these themes extend to all forms of sexual immorality. But there's an important point that he makes that we don't want to miss right here at the beginning, and it's found in that word, forbidden. You know, it's interesting. We could look right past it, but why is he mentioning this word forbidden? In the original language, this word has a sense of being strange, foreign, something that's out of bounds. So, what is Solomon getting at by even using this word at the beginning of his discourse? Well, you may remember from the first sermon in this series that the whole purpose for the book of Proverbs is to point us to the way of life and away from the way of death. We see from Proverbs that the good life can be lived, not just in this world, but ultimately in the next, and that this is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ Himself. God has revealed to us that the world and everything in it was created for this grand redemptive purpose of bringing Himself glory by redeeming a people for Himself. And so wisdom, therefore, for every area of life flows from this reality, this reality that God has a plan, an intention, and a purpose, and this includes human sexuality. Now, don't you see how this focus already runs contrary to the focus of the world? What does the world say when it comes to sexuality? It's my way. You don't have a right to speak into how I use my body. All those rules seem so archaic does anybody obey them anymore? You see, our world elevates our desires and our preferences over the plan of God. And as one pastor put it, we need, and the Word of God helps us shift our focus away from being on our self-gratification, and we need to have our attention fixed on God's glorification. So, that invites the question then, What's in bounds as it relates to human sexuality? What avenue for sexual expression has God given that glorifies him? Well, God makes this very plain. Genesis 2, 24 says clearly, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Brothers and sisters, the answer for human sexuality and its correct expression according to God's design is marriage. The covenantal union before God of one man and one woman and only man and woman together for life. That's what's in bounds. So what's out of bounds? Well, very plainly and clearly, everything else. If it's outside the boundary of that one man, one woman relationship, everything else is out of bounds. As a matter of fact, the New Testament, when it talks about sexual morality, it uses the word porneia, and that word really uh, encapsulates and captures every single sexual thought, every single desire, every single touch, every action that is outside of that one man, one woman, lifelong relationship. And why is it this way? Well, because brothers and sisters, it harkens back to God's plan and purposes, As Ephesians 5 makes abundantly clear, marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ in the church. Sexual expression expressed rightly in the confines of marriage is meant to be a picture of the satisfaction and the intimacy and the joy that can be found in union with God Himself through the gospel. And so, we see here that the purpose of purity is not merely to keep some legalistic set of rules to appease some cosmic killjoy… Instead, purity's purpose is to promote the glory of God, both in our lives and in the lives of others, as a display of his character and his goodness to the world. And as creator, God knows what's best for us. He's designed our bodies and he knows them better than we do. He knows their purpose, how to best use them according to his body. And that leads us to our next purpose of purity that we see it's our good. It's our good. I remember years ago, I was driving through the mountains uh, through a snowstorm at night. I don't recommend it. Uh, But we were coming back from a trip, and what made the trip particularly difficult was not just that I couldn't see because of the snowfall out my windshield. No, what made it really hard was the fact that I couldn't see the road lines. Now, why was that? Well, because the boundary lines on the road keep you safe. I remember coming out of that snowstorm with a renewed affection for road lines. I remember being so grateful because the yellow line keeps me from oncoming traffic and certain death, and the white line keeps me from going off a cliff. It's by the road lines that we know the correct boundaries through which we can travel and be made safe. You see, similarly, God knows our bodies, and He knows that true joy and safety is found by staying in the boundaries that He as Creator has made. Sexual sin is ultimately just rebelling, therefore, against God's design and purposes. Is this not the basis of the lie of Satan in the garden from the very beginning? Is this not the initial untruth that Adam and Eve believed that led to the introduction of sin in the world? God had established just one boundary for them. He said, You may eat of any tree in the garden, except this one. And then what happened? Satan tempted them to think God was withholding something good from them. They elevated themselves, therefore, above God's plan and purposes, and they rebelled against Him, and that invited the curse of sin and death. Brothers and sisters, God knows what's good for us. He's designed the boundaries of sexuality for that purpose just as much as He did for His glory. He knows what's good for His creation. So positively, we see these motivations, that we're motivated to purity by God's glory and our good. But what's interesting is that Solomon doesn't spend the majority of of his time on this. Instead, he spends the majority of time in this chapter and in chapter 7 exploring the negative motivations for sexual purity. And those are the penalties that come from impurity. Take a look down at Proverbs 5 verses 8 through 12. It says, to his son, keep your way far from her, talking about the adulteress. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. What is he talking about here? Well, he's warning his son about the very real consequences that come even in this life from sexual immorality. Your strength, your reputation, your honor, gone. Evaporated in the wake of sexual sin. The gifts, the strength that used to be used for productivity toward your family and for the community, wasted. Now to be spent digging yourself out of the hole of your sin. Your wealth, your way of life, your provision, gone. You could even lose your job, lose your family lose your ability to provide. And we know this to be true, brothers and sisters, do we not? We see it in the headlines all the time of people who fall into ruin because of sexual sin. He goes on in uh, Proverbs 5.11 to say that at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, hinting at the reality that maybe as a result of your sin, you even die from it. Maybe you get an STD or a disease that wastes your body away. Maybe you even die because the avenger of that woman you committed adultery with comes and kills you himself, which is something he hints at in Proverbs 7. So, what is he doing here? He's trying to paint a picture for his son that sexual immorality, even based off the earthly consequences, simply isn't worth it. He's calling out to his son, seeing the tracks coming down, uh, seeing the train coming down the tracks, and he's saying, get off the tracks. Death is coming. It just simply is not worth it. Proverbs six twenty-seven through 28, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? You see, by the time you discover that you've been burned in sexual immorality, it will have been too late. The damage is done. Don't be counted among those who are filled with regret on the other side of sexual morality. Listen to the pain, the anguish behind these words of, the, of one who doesn't heed this warning, Proverbs 5, 12 through 14, and you say, how I hated discipline, how my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Do you not hear the pain in that, the regret? Don't be counted among those who are filled with regret, he says. So men and women, by way of quick application for us, just right here, the next time you're tempted to flirt with someone who's not your spouse, the next time you're tempted to click or to share that image on a screen, ask yourself this question from Proverbs. Is it worth ruining my life? Teenagers, when you're tempted to take it to the next level with someone who's not yet your spouse, ask yourself the question: Is it worth ruining everything? Sexual sin is foolish, brothers and sisters, because ultimately it destroys ourselves. Proverbs 6:32: "He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself." Paul picks up on this theme in 1 Corinthians 6:18: "Every other sin a person commits out, is outside the body but sexually immoral persons sins against their own body. And as if these motivations were not enough, Solomon goes on to make clear that it's not just temporal tribulations that we face for sexual sin. No, in fact, God makes very clear in His Word that a much bigger threat looms on the horizon, and that's eternal condemnation. Look back at Proverbs 5, 5, and 6, where it says the adulterous uh, adulterous woman's feet go down to death Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the way of life, but her ways wander, and she does not know it. You see, the reason why her way leads to death is because ultimately at the end of the road, God stands in judgment over all sexual sin. Our lives, remember, are intended to be a display of His character, of His holiness, and of His glory. And so, sexual sin stands a direct affront to His holiness and to all of His good purposes for our lives. The reason that we need to have this reminder is because we forget so often as we swim in the waters of this world that Proverbs 5.21, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord at all times. God is always seeing and keeping an account of what we're doing. And brothers and sisters, the world's going to constantly tell us at every stage that it's really not that bad. It'll be fine. I can repent later. And speaking into those lies, hear what the New Testament says as a warning. Galatians 5, 19 and 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, it's a promise. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And these warnings are necessary because like all sin, we have to remember that sexual sin stands to promise something that it cannot ultimately deliver. It's like following a treasure map only to find that the treasure box is not just empty, but it's filled with deadly poison that kills you immediately as soon as you open it. That's why Proverbs 5 through 7 are filled with phrases that highlight sexual sin's deceptive nature. 5, 3 through 4 says that the adulteress's uh, uh, woman's words are sweet and smooth, but in the end they're bitter and deadly. 722 says that the sexually immoral pers- person is like one who's being drawn in like an ox walks to the slaughterhouse unawares, only to be ensnared and then pierced through with the pangs of death. Don't buy it, brothers and sisters, both for the temporary tribulations and for the eternal condemnations that await sexual impurity. Don't buy it because God is telling you that the lanterns are being paraded along the coastline and that approaching them will destroy you. And He does this because He loves us. So, what do we do with all these warnings, with all of this condemnation language? Well, Proverbs 4.26 says that we should ponder the path of our feet in order to keep our ways sure. So, what should we be watching out for? We must guard our hearts against the things that would seek to persuade us to impurity. And those two things that we see very plainly in these chapters are seductive words and enticing images. Look again at Proverbs 5.3 a lot going on in that verse. It says that the forbidden woman's lips drip honey and that her speech is smooth. What is he getting at with this honey and smoothness language? Well, he's getting at that as the man listens to them, his, his, his ego is stoked. She's maybe flattering him, beckoning him to come. Or flip over to Proverbs 7, 14 through 21. We won't read the entire passage, but maybe later you can. There, the promiscuous woman is uh, beckoning the man to come, but she does so by complimenting him first. She makes him feel like he's the center of the universe. She sensually describes what delights await him with her, and then she lies promising that no harm will come. In verse 21, it says that the man is persuaded by her seductive words, and that uh, men and women can both do this too. This is not just something that only women do to affect men. We have to be mindful that both of our genders can do this if we're not careful. Men know how to persuade women, and women know how to allure men with their words. And I think Solomon's communicating another important point about the power of words. I don't think it's just that sexual speech can get us excited, though that is true, I also think he's highlighting that words are often the first step towards greater sexual sin, including adultery. One commentator put it this way, communication may seem innocent enough at first. The woman in the cubicle beside you laughs at your jokes. The old boyfriend on Facebook interacts with you and makes you feel important. Your friend at the gym seems to understand you better than your wife and then all of a sudden you find yourself forging a relational intimacy that precedes and paves the path for physical intimacy that's out of bounds. Unless you think it's only a caution for married people, it's not, because words can also seduce us in other ways. Maybe you're reading a novel that graphically describes a sexual encounter. Where does that take your mind? Maybe you're listening to song lyrics that are sexually explicit, You rationalize, as long as I'm not watching anything, it's okay. Brothers and sisters, do you really want your mind and your heart to be filled with trash when you could be sending them on the things above where Christ is seated? We must stop rationalizing and be on guard for using our words and receiving words that either directly build a relationship with someone who's not our spouse or that fix our minds on sexual themes that lead us to impurity. We must be on guard against the deceptive nature of words, of all varieties, and see them for what they are, snares for our hearts. But words aren't the only snares, and the next category of persuasion to sexual sin almost needs no introduction, but we have to address it anyway. It's enticing images. Take a look at Proverbs 6.25. It says, "'Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes.'" Solomon here states plainly what we know to be true. Lust begins in the heart, but often the fire of lust is stoked by images, whether real or imagined. And we need to make a quick point on this, that being beautiful or being attractive is not sinful. It is the error of our hearts that that causes us to sexual sin. But images nonetheless we must be mindful of are a powerful persuasion to impurity And here's where remembering God's design is so critical. Again, it's not that physical attraction to a member of the opposite sex is inherently sinful. As a matter of fact, Adam's first words to Eve were essentially praising God for bringing Him a beautiful woman. But we must be mindful that the devil uses this aspect of creation that was intended for God's good design and then twists it. He uses images and physical beauty to tempt us to go out of bounds to take our minds and hearts where they ought not go. I almost wonder if Solomon's thinking of the failure of his own father David here. King David, as you may remember, had everything in the world, but his eyes lingered a little too long on Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Just one glance, where did that lead? He ended up committing adultery with her, had Uriah killed to cover it up, suffered the loss of his son as discipline from God, and then was racked with guilt and shame. Jesus warns us of this danger, brothers and sisters. He says in five, uh, Matthew 5, 28 I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And men, and maybe some women, this is why pornography stated very plainly is so terrible. Because not only does it rot our minds and distort our understanding of God's good design for sexuality? But according to Christ, it's committing adultery over and over again in your heart against either your current spouse or your future spouse. We must be on guard against falling prey to seductive images and words that the devil has laid as a snare for our hearts. You know, So far, we've been going through a lot of the painful realities of sexual immorality. We've learned that it requires condemnation because it's against God's holy design. And if we're all honest, we know we've all stumbled in this area. And that's just the problem. All of us in some way have failed in this area. And listen, I know that in a room of this size, there may be some, there may be many people who feel the conviction of sin over this area of sexual immorality. It may have been years ago, it may have been days ago, it may have been hours ago. Maybe you're remembering that time when you flirted, touched, or spoke in a way you shouldn't have. And you're filled with guilt, asking, Is there any hope? Maybe you're imprisoned right now in the chains of pornography wondering if there's any way out. You've tried to stop over and over again, but you keep failing, and you're wondering, is there any hope for me? Or maybe like David, you've fallen to the temptation of adultery, and maybe you've already lost your reputation, your wealth, and your loved ones over your sin, or maybe you're about to, and you're wondering, you're asking, is there any hope for me? And this is where I want you to lean in and pay attention real close. There is. There is hope. Because where we neglected the promises and the purposes of God in human sexuality, Jesus pursued the purposes and the plan of God perfectly. Jesus spurned all of the persuasions to sin and He earned a perfect righteousness before our holy God. And where the penalties for our sin are due to us, in love, Jesus took all of those penalties on Himself, and He died making full provision, full atonement for all of your sin and all of mine. This is God's love on display for sinners, brothers and sisters, that He would be the one to reach into our sin-cursed state to save us, and to redeem us, and to make us whole. And when He was raised victoriously from the dead, it was a declaration that that the chains that once held us in darkness were broken forever. The polluted garments that we once wore were now exchanged for robes of righteousness, extended to everybody who would repent and confess their sin, turn to Christ, and receive His forgiveness. So, do you feel broken over your sexual sin this morning? I hope so. Do you feel dirty over your sexual sin this morning? Know that by faith in Jesus, His blood washes you completely clean. If you're in Him, that's your standing. You are washed, you are sanctified. You are purified, no matter the sins of your past. As the hymn puts it so powerfully, He, through the gospel, breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for you and for me. So, if you're here today and you've not placed your faith in Christ, I urge you turn to Him, be cleansed, experience forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration that only God can provide. And if you are a follower of Christ, I want you to remember that even in the pain and in the darkness and in the suffering that may be as a result of your sin that you are cleansed, and that you stand pure before Christ. Because as we heard earlier, His Spirit now lives in us and has made us His holy dwelling. And we have all the resources necessary in Him to walk in purity. Romans eight twenty eight says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, and by His power through repentance and faith, God's Word gives us confidence that you can, in fact, be pure because He's already in Christ declared it to be. And so how can we walk in this purity that God's Spirit has provided? I think the Spirit empowers us to walk through through two paths that lead us to this purity that's already been declared true about us and that we desperately need His grace to walk in. And the first is a term that we heard even last time when Mike was preaching from Proverbs 4 about guarding our hearts. We need and we are empowered by the Spirit to have new expulsive affections. What do we mean by this? Well, Thomas Chalmers, a, a theologian, he said it's not merely enough to convince our hearts that they must be weaned away from sin or sexual immorality in our case. We must be instead filled with a new affection for the only thing that can truly satisfy, namely Jesus Christ Himself. Brothers and sisters, since lust and sexual morality is ultimately a condition of the heart, we therefore need to cultivate a thankfulness, a love, a satisfaction in Jesus Christ that dispels the dark delights of sexual temptation. We see this truth hinted at in Proverbs 7, 4, and 5, where it says, Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep your way from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. We, We see this hinted at in Solomon saying, cozy up to wisdom, which we know is the plan and purposes of God. But brothers and sisters, the miraculous thing is we have more information than Solomon did. We have the Gospels. We know the person and the work of Jesus. So read the Gospels. Spend time in His Word. Read the rich theology from Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, and let yourself soak in the joy that is Christ's love for you so that the sponge of your heart is so full it doesn't want to soak up anything else. Replace sexually immoral images with the image of your Savior writhing in pain for your sin on the cross. Replace seductive words with the Word of God. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to Your Word. But God's provision for healthy expression of sexuality isn't just vertical satisfaction, though that is sufficient. God, remember, has a good design for sexuality, that's marriage, and so horizontally He's given us a a place where we can express those affections too. So that which is true vertically, we can now express through the correct boundary lines horizontally in the institution of marriage. As one pastor put it, a good offense is the best defense. Brothers and sisters, you know what I'm saying. Proverbs 5:15 through 19, I won't read it because it's a little bit PG-13, but it echoes Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 7 that sexuality expressed in a healthy marriage can help guard you from the sin of sexual temptation. So, men… I'm just telling you, Proverbs 5, 15 through 19, those are your verses. But ladies, you're not not left alone either. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians 6, you have some verses too, okay? I'll just leave it at that. So, express yourself in the confines of marriage in a way that honors the Lord. And spouses, you need to cultivate, therefore, affection for one another that helps each other remain pure. Now, what about singles, those who are not yet married? Well, I think sometimes we can look past this, but singles really fall into two categories. There's those who have the calling of singleness, people like the Apostle Paul, our Savior Jesus Christ, who they'll never be married, and that's God's good plan for them. And then there are others who they feel these inclinations and they know they want to be married, that they don't feel God's called them to singleness forever, but they're awaiting a spouse. Well, how do you cultivate and express your horizontal affections correctly? Well, one, in the the pattern of everything we've discussed, you still need to remain pure. It's not that your status as a single gives you permission to go outside God's bounds, not at all. But in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, Paul does make clear that the way that you can cultivate your affections is through unhindered service to God, both in the church and in the community. So seize the moment that God's given you to spend yourself for His glory in the truly unique ways that only singles can. You can glorify God as a single by remaining pure and by honoring Christ and then being about His mission in the world, even as you prayerfully consider and await for a spouse brought to you by the Lord. So, kindle your affections that way as well. So, we have the vertical expulsive affections. We have the horizontal uh, protections of affections for our spouse, but then we also, I think, need to erect wise protections in our life. So, in addition to these expulsive affections, Christ empowers us to embrace wise protections from sin. Hear these words from Jesus in Matthew 5, 28 through 30. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, He says, cut it off and throw it away for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. This theme is also similar to Proverbs 5:8, where Solomon exhorts his son, keep your way far from her. Do not even go near the door of her house. So, what is Jesus and Solomon getting at here? Well, there's wisdom to erecting barriers that t- aid us in fighting the temptations. Sin. Now, right here, you may be thinking, it may be popping into your head, Chase, that sounds a lot like legalism. And here's the deal you'd be right if you think setting up protections somehow earns God's grace and favor. But what we see from God's word is that we don't erect barriers to sin as a way of earning God's uh, grace and favor. Instead, wisdom is establishing boundaries. To help us walk in God's grace and favor, they're like the road lines that keep us in the boundaries. Each of us has our own temptations. I can't presume to know all of them, but we know that there are things that we can do to safeguard ourselves from the common patterns that lead us to impurity. And so, what are some barriers in closing that we can think through that aid us in the fight? against sexual sin. I'm going to give you five, and they're going to go quickly, so don't worry. The first one is a direct command from God's Word from 1 Corinthians 6, flee temptation. Consider Jesus' words and heed them. What's causing you to be tempted towards sin in this area? Cut it out. Are there times of the day in which you're more susceptible when you're left alone? text a friend, go out to a movie, do something that keeps you from sin? Are there certain apps on your phone that regularly parade these seductive and enticing images and words before you that lead you to impurity? Is that app worth being thrown into the fires of hell? Romans 13, 13 through 14 says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in sexual immorality, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and hear this, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I think sometimes we hear that and we think, oh, He doesn't mean no provision. He means no provision. In the Greek, it says no provision. There's no magic to it. So, don't make provision for the flesh. But then secondly, to aid us in that, I want to encourage you to invite accountability. You know, one of the greatest gifts that the Lord has given to us as believers, like we prayed and even sung about earlier, is that we're not lone rangers in the Christian faith. We've been brought into a family of God that's all on the same track together. We're all trying to get to that finish line, are we not? And so He's given us the church to aid us in that journey. It's one of God's chief graces in our lives. So avail yourself of it. Don't try to fight sin alone. Don't believe the lies of the devil, that you're the only one. Let me just dispel that right now. You're not the only one battling sin in this area. So help each other. Invite healthy conversations where you can put into practice Proverbs 28:13. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses it and forsakes it will find compassion. It's just an application of what the author to Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any, uh, in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Brothers, sisters, let's hold ourselves accountable. Seek out another man, another woman, that you can ask and answer hard questions and pray for one another that you would put on the full armor of God for this fight. Thirdly, pursue modesty. Now, this is for both men and women before I get angry emails, okay? This is for both of us. Don't dress yourself in such a way that you become the seductive image leading a brother or a sister astray. The picture in Proverbs we see is that the seductive woman knows exactly what she's doing, and just as an aside, men do too. When we dress, when we act, when we display ourselves a certain way, we're inviting that attention, and in doing so, we're leading others possibly to sin. Obey God's commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, would you want to be lured into temptation and sin? No, so don't do it yourself. So I can't say what that is ultimately for you, but just search your heart. Ask God to reveal, God, am I doing this for the right reason, for the wrong reason? And then also too, don't let culture be your standard. Live counter-culturally that evidences that your aim is uniquely to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and to care for your brothers and sisters in the faith guys, if we use the culture as our standard, we're always going to err because who's in charge of the culture? The devil. In Ephesians, he's called the God of this age. Don't let culture be the standard. Let God be your standard. Pursue modesty and holiness. And then fourthly, and I might get some flack for this one too, but relate responsibly. Now, hear me out on this. When it comes to how men and women should interact, especially in dating relationships… I find that the question surrounding what's right and permissible often is a version of how far is too far. I think, given the danger of sexual sin and the prize of sexual expression in marriage, that this is the wrong question. Instead, I think we should be asking the question, what activity, if someone were to do it to my spouse, would make me upset? Men, if a man walked in and kissed your wife, would you make that angry? Why would that make you angry? Why then do we allow it and permit it in relationships with people who are not yet our spouse? Women, if another woman came in and started holding your husband's hand or caressing his arm, would you have a problem with that? If so, then why do we encourage physical touch before it's permissible? And look, I know similar to the last point that this is counterculture, counter-cultural, but before your wedding day, you need to be reminded that in God's word, before your husband and uh, wife, you are brothers and sisters. So treat each other that way. Treat each other as brothers and sisters. And you know, I've never met a couple who's regretted the things they did not do. And then lastly, number five: call to Christ. You know, Andy's mentioned this before, but I love this. Romans 10:3 says, "Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and that is certainly true in our justification but I also think it's a powerful weapon in our sanctification. When you are feeling the temptation to sin, call out the name of Jesus Christ. Even do it audibly. And remember the promise from 1 Corinthians 10 as you do so that God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will what? He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, call out to Christ, and in doing so, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, James 4, 7. In all of this, brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded that we're going to fail, we're going to make mistakes, but the call on us is to keep fighting. Remember that if you are in Christ, you are pure. So, let's lean into the Spirit through prayer and through His Word to walk in that purity. And even when we do fail, remember that Jesus stands right there ready to save you, ready to extend His grace again. Call on Him. And even if you do fail, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward look. See Him there who's made an end to all your sin. Close with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the clarity that your word gives us around this issue of sexual purity. Lord, our world, we know, has been designed, in a sense, to lead us astray in this and in every area. God, would you please renew our affections for Christ this morning in such a way that we're not led to lesser counterfeit affections? Would you please send your spirit, Lord, to break the chains that are around the hearts of some even this morning in the area of sexual sin? And would you please give us the hope and the comfort, the peace that comes from walking in the forgiveness and in the joy that only Jesus can afford? We pray all of this in the name of your powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.